God made several covenants with human beings throughout the Bible. There's the covenant He made with Noah. There's the covenant He made with Abraham. There's the covenant He made with Moses. There's the covenant that we're going to look at tonight that He made with David. He made a covenant with Daniel. And He also made a covenant with the prophet Jeremiah dealing with the new covenant that you and I live under today. And isn't it incredible that I think one of the things that the psalmist David here is reminding us of is the God of the universe is willing to interact with human beings and literally obligate himself to an agreement that he made with us. I mean, when you think about that, it's like God wouldn't have to do that at all. It it shows the, the kindness and the condescension of God that he's willing to come down to our level and say... Hey, I, I want to make an agreement with you, and most of it's just going to depend on me being faithful. It's not going to depend on you, because, you know, can't expect human beings to be faithful. So, that's what this is all about tonight. And so, before we get into Psalm 132, I want to give you the, the foundation, if you will, of Psalm 132 being written out of. So, I want you to go to 2 Samuel. And I want you to see this. This is amazing here, too. In fact, before we read it, you'll see this here. David is now king, and he's living in this palace. And he sort of feels like guilty. Because God's house, if you will, at this point, is a tabernacle. It's, It's a tent. And there's not much to it. And so David starts to feel guilty about the fact that he's living in this lavish palace and God really doesn't have a great house to dwell in. So David goes, God, I want to build you a house. And God says to David, well, David, that's great, but you really, nothing can contain me. I'm God. And I appreciate the fact that you want to, I I hear your heart, that's great, but you're not going to build me a house. Your son's going to build me a house one day, but you're not. But guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you into a dynasty. And David is just blown away. It's like, it's like that start of like, God, I want to do something for you. And God turns around and says, no, I'm going to do something even better for you. It's a reminder to us that we can't out-bless God. We can't outgive God. Whatever we say, God, this is what I'm going to do for you, God will turn right around and do way beyond for us more than we could ever imagine. And you see that here in 2 Samuel. So follow along with me. I'm just going to read these 17 verses and then we'll go back to Psalm 132 and get into it. But you, you sort of do have to understand what's going on here in 2 Samuel 7 to really get the gist of Psalm 132 tonight. The king settled into his palace, for the Lord gave him relief from all the enemies on all sides. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I'm living in a palace made from cedar while the ark of God sits in the middle of a tent. Nathan replied to the king, You should go and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. That night the Lord told Nathan, Go, tell my servant David this is what the Lord says. Do you really intend to build a house for me to live in? I have not lived in a house from the time I brought the Israelites up from Egypt to the present day. Instead, I was traveling with them and living in a tent. Wherever I moved among all the Israelites, I did not say to any of the leaders whom I appointed to care for the people of Israel, why have you not built me a house? 
made from cedar. It didn't bother God as much as it bothered David. So now say this to my servant, David. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture, from your work as a shepherd to make you leader of my people Israel. I was with you wherever you went and I defeated all your enemies before you. Now I will make you as famous as the great men of the earth. I will establish a place for my people Israel and settle them there. They will live there and not be disturbed anymore. Violent men will not oppress them again as they did in the beginning and during the time when I appointed judges to lead my people Israel. Instead, I will give you relief from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you that he himself will build a dynastic house for you. When the time comes for you to die, I will raise up your descendant, one of your sons, to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will make his dynasty permanent. I will become his father, and he will become my son, and when he sins, I will correct him in the rod, with the rod of men and with wounds inflicted by human beings. But my loyal love will not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be permanent. Nathan told David all these words that were revealed to him. And then I just want to go on just for a little bit here. Verse 18. King David went in, sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my family that you should have brought me to this point? David is just blown away that God, here's David, he he just wants to build the Lord a house and God is going to build a dynasty from the shepherd boy, David. And all David could say is, who am I? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? I got to tell you, there are many days where I wake up And I repeat those words because I feel like the most blessed man in all the world to be the pastor of the Oasis Church and to be able to do what I do every day and to be able to do it with the people that I do it with. And many days I'll get up and say, God, who am I? What is my house? This little boy from a small town in western Maryland, who am I? And what is my house that you've brought me that far? So Psalm 132. This psalm is written about David's dynasty. But it's actually, the occasion of it is, I believe, down the line somewhere, long after even Solomon. This is another occasion for the enthronement of another king in the Davidic dynasty line, if you will. We get that because in verse 1, the author says, O Lord, for David's sake, remember. So it's not David who's writing this. It's someone who's stepping into the shoes of being the leader of Israel. Now this psalm divides out very nicely into two sections, or two parts. In the first ten verses, you have a description of David's desires. Many of those we just read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then in verse 11 through verse 18, the final part of the psalm, we have the Lord's promises. And here's what I want us to see tonight in this psalm. I want us to see the heart of David for worship. 
That's what I want us to see in the first ten verses. David desires people to worship God and to have a place to worship God. And then the author, whoever it was, concentrates on the promises that the Lord has made. And we'll look at those in detail. And then we'll wrap it all up with one final challenge tonight. Notice, back at verse 1. O Lord, for David's sake, remember all his strenuous effort and how he made a vow to the Lord and swore an oath to the powerful ruler of Jacob. He said, I will not enter my own home or go into my bed. I will not allow my eyes to sleep or my eyelids to slumber until I find a place for the Lord, a fine dwelling place for the powerful ruler of Jacob. Now, I want to direct your attention to the words strenuous effort there in verse 1. The author is reminding us that David went through a lot of hardship, difficulty, and trial before he finally ascended the throne of Israel. We talked a little bit about that last week. And yet, God had a purpose in all of it. And once David finally got there, like it is for many of us as human beings, he appreciated where he was so much more. When things are given to people without them working for it or earning it or even going through some tough times before they get there, they can't appreciate what's given to them as much as someone who, like David, remember, he was a shepherd. He lived out in the fields. And it was a great life. He loved that life of watching the sheep and stuff. But to go from... You can imagine in his mind it would be like somebody today who, you know, worked a really hard, you know, 60, 70 hour a week manual labor job outside in 110 degrees in Phoenix in the summertime, and then all of a sudden was governor of the state of Arizona and got to sit behind a desk in the air conditioning and be like, wow, what a, that's David. And he so appreciates how far God has brought him and the opportunity that he has now to lead the people of God and to sit in this wonderful palace. And so he goes, I can't rest. I am consumed with, with honoring God in this way. I want him to have a more elegant dwelling place, a place that is the very centerpiece of all of Israel and in Jerusalem, even more than the one that I dwell in, because he's the true king. And I would not even be king if it wasn't for him. He made me king. Nobody in Israel made me king. I am where I'm at only because of the graciousness of Almighty God. And so David's desire, first of all, is to build a temple for the Lord. Verse 5, until I find a place, literally in the Hebrew, a sacred space for God. Why is it a sacred space? It's a sacred space from God's perspective, just like this cafeteria is on Wednesday and just like the auditorium here at Basha is on Sunday, because it's a place where God says, I will meet with my people there. So wherever God's people meet, whether it's in a, a great, you know, church or whether it's in a school cafeteria, God says, 
that's a sacred space because I'm going to meet with my people there. And David wants to build God a permanent residence. That's what the words, a fine dwelling place for the powerful ruler of Jacob, verse 5, mean. In other words, again, remember, up to this point, God's sort of been, you know, illustratively traveling around in the tabernacle, which is fine, but, but David wanted to build a place where it would be like, this is where God comes to meet with his people. And this is where God's people then can come to meet with him. Instead of, you know, the whole tabernacle thing. Then verse 6. The author of Psalm 132 says, Look, we heard about it in Ephrathah. We found it in the territory of Jar. And, and why is he using those geographical places? Because these places are the home turf of David. This is where David was from. Remember Bethlehem, Ephrathah? And Jar is another place that was basically David's hometown area. And what, it's, what he's saying to us is, even from the time that David was young and stuff, David had this desire to worship God. Even when he was a shepherd boy, he had a desire to worship God. And so now that he's king and he has the ability and the resources to be able to do something about it, he wants to build this place where God can come and permanently meet with his people. We know that it's not about the building. And that's something important for us as we get ready to break ground and, and you know, now, you know, get started on our buildings that... It's wonderful that God has given us this opportunity now to begin to break ground and, and put up these buildings, but it doesn't matter about the buildings itself if these buildings are not going to be, again, a sacred space for God to meet with His people and for us primarily to look at these buildings as a place where we come and worship the Lord. It may as well be a, some secular institution if it's not a place where we are saying, this is where we come to worship the Lord. And we get that. Notice the very next verse. Verse 7, let us go to his dwelling place. This was David's desire. He's just simply, the author, whoever it is, is simply saying, this was David's heart. This was his desire. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship before his footstool. By the way, the word worship there literally means to bow down. To bow down. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. In fact, I, I'm sure Nicole's going to just, 134 is going to be great for her. Because it's going to be talking about movement and worship and stuff. I, I think so often, especially in certain circles, and I'll say this because this was my background, coming from a Brethren or Baptist background, there wasn't a lot of movement. And yet, if you study worship in the Bible... And you even look at the way worship will be in heaven, because Psalm 134 is a foretaste of heaven. There's a lot of movement. You know, well, I'll get to that in a couple of weeks. I don't want to get ahead of myself. And, and we know now in verse 8 that David not only had a desire to build a temple for the Lord, he had a desire to exalt the Lord in worship. 
Because he says in verse 8, Ascend, O Lord, to your resting place. Literally, to your comfortable abode. God, we want, we want to create a place where you will be comfortable coming and manifesting your presence and power amongst us and just sort of settling in there with us. That's a, that's a great concept. Because that's actually a New Testament concept. In Ephesians 2.22, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, God wants to build all of you to be a dwelling place for His Spirit. He wants to build a house, if you will, to where the Spirit can come and literally settle down and be comfortable and sort of, you know, move in. And not be a, a temporary guest or just an every once in a while visitor, but a permanent resident. Just like David's desire was for God here. So he goes on to say, Oh, send, O Lord, to your resting place. You, you go to your rightful place. We're bowing down in worship. So you notice there the difference. It's like, we're, we're going to bow down because we recognize who you are. You are high and living. You ascend. And it's the idea that true worship is all about putting God in His rightful place. That's what true worship is. Recognizing and acknowledging God in His rightful place. Because once you and I do that, everything else falls into its place. If God's got the highest place, then everything else will be okay. And then he says, Ascend, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark, the ark of the covenant, which was the symbolic presence of your strength. May your priests be clothed with integrity. I love this. The word integrity actually in the Hebrew means a people enjoying their salvation. I love that. How can the people, we expect the people to enjoy their salvation if the leaders aren't enjoying their salvation, if you will. So notice David is saying, leaders, you got to be a people that exhibit that you're enjoying your salvation. And that, let that spill over into others. I told Nicole last week, I catch her up here when she's worshiping, just smiling. She's enjoying it. And I know her heart is, she wants all of us to catch that too. To not just come and just sort of go through the motions, but to truly enjoy our, our worship of God. And to, to understand that we, all people, should enjoy this great salvation that God has given us. Which is why then he goes on to say, May your loyal followers shout for joy. Rejoice in triumph. Literally, be overcome and overwhelmed by your God and what He has done. That's worship. When you and I can be overwhelmed and overcome by God. Then you'll hear some shouting. And there will be joy. So he goes on to say, verse 10, For the sake of David, your servant, do not reject, do not turn away from your chosen king. Again, Psalm 132, the foundation is 2 Samuel 7, the desire of David. But this is beyond David now in history. This was someone who is being enthroned now as the king of Israel. And let me say this. David's dynasty 
in Israel lasted for 400 years. It is, in history, the longest-running dynasty of one house that there's ever been in history. 400 years, from 1,000 B.C. up to the beginning of 500 B.C. Somebody in the line of David reigned in Israel for 400 years. Now, I'm going to come back to this in just a moment. After that, though, after that, at the beginning of 500 B.C., so now 500 years until Christ came, all the way up until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Roman Emperor Titus, there's been no Davidic king on the throne. So, we'll talk about that at the very end. But I want you to see now the Lord's promises. Because that's really what started this all anyway. Remember, David says, God, I want to build a house for you. And God says, no, I don't want you to build me a house yet, but I'm going to build, an, I'm going to build a dynasty out of you. And again, not because David deserved it, not because he earned it. It was all of God's grace and goodness. Because just like us, we know how David failed the Lord many times. It's very well documented. And those are just the things the Bible told us about David. So notice these great... And as we talk about the Lord's promises, here's how I want to bring this real to you, you and me tonight. As we think about the covenants of God or the promises of God, I want you to, I want you to think about certain promises. Those precious promises that God has given us. And I, I want you to... I want you to use this passage tonight to sort of fuel over the next couple days and maybe even weeks you, you searching out some of those promises that God has given us in His Word and dwelling on them and meditating on them and worshiping from them. Using the promises of God as a foundation and fuel for your worship of Him in the days to come. Notice the Lord's promises beginning in verse 11. The Lord made a reliable promise to David. The words here in the Hebrew speak about what is firm, what is faithful, what is sure, that brings stability. That's the great thing about God. Whatever God promises is sure. It's firm. It's faithful. He, as he goes on to say, he will not go back on his word. You can count on it. You can bank on it. You can put your whole life and stake your whole eternity on it. His word is sure. That's the great thing about the promises of God. Promises are only as good as the people who give them. People make, human beings make promises to each other all the time, but we understand in relationships, not everybody follows through with their pledges and promises and vows and all of that. God does. God always does. And that's why we can have st such stability in our life. Because of the reliable promises of God. And that's why I think they're a great foundation and fuel for our worship of Him. He said, I will place one of your descendants on your throne. Verse 12. If your sons keep my covenant and the rules I teach them, their sons will also sit on your throne forever. Now, here's the first specific promise, verse 13. The Lord promises His presence. 
Certainly the Lord has chosen Zion. He decided to make it his home, literally his dwelling place. In fact, he said, this will be my resting place, my comfortable abode forever. I will live here for I have chosen it. God pledged himself to have his presence there. I call this the Emmanuel principle. God with us. And here's the cool thing. Was this part of the Davidic covenant? Yes, but this is also part of the new covenant. God promises us His presence. In fact, God Himself, the Holy Spirit, lives within us as believers. So God says, not only will my presence be with you, my presence will be in you. Jeremiah, if you want to study the new covenant. Then, notice verse 15, the Lord promises His provision. Again, same thing He promises us too. I'll provide for you. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He'll take me to green pastures. He'll take me to still waters. So notice what the psalmist says, verse 15. I will abundantly, God says, supply what she needs. Speaking of Zion. I will even give her poor all the food they need. God says, I'll I'll provide. My presence will be with you and I'll provide everything that you need. And then God says in verse 16, He promises His protection. I will protect her priests and her godly people will shout exuberantly, cry out in jubilant exaltation. We got to start getting a little bit more jubilant. We've got a lot to be jubilant about. Again, if we understand what God has done for us. And we stand before God like David. David, who am I, God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Why would you do all this for me? I don't deserve any of this. My goodness, let's praise the Lord. So then the psalmist, and why is he sharing all this? Remember, these are psalms of ascent, right? So these are reminders for the worshipers as they're headed to Jerusalem. So again, get the cool picture here. Why is this psalm important? Because as travelers are going to travel to Jerusalem for these three festivals three times a year, they're going to be reminded the whole reason we even have a temple to go to is because God allowed Solomon to build it. And it was all started with the desire of our ancestor David. And the only reason we have Jerusalem and we have a temple to go to and and we have all this is because God promised us His presence and His protection and His provision and we've had so much from God. How can we not go and bow down and worship Him and shout exuberantly God goes on to say, verse 17, here's His promise, Therefore, I will make David strong, raising up rulers of the Davidic line. I have determined that my chosen king's dynasty will continue. Literally in the Hebrew, I have determined that my lamp or light embodied in the king's dynasty will continue. There will always be a light, a remnant. I will humiliate His enemies, And then he says in verse 18, and his crown, meaning anyone who wears that crown in succession, will shine. Literally, the word in Hebrew means gleam. 
His crown will gleam. David's desires was all about God. I want to have a place where we can worship you. You are so deserving of worship. You have done so much for us. May we recognize it. May we appreciate it. May we acknowledge it. And may we acknowledge you. May we exuberantly come before you and worship you, God. And give it everything we've got because you've given us everything you have. You have blessed us. Look at all these promises, God, that you've made. You took a shepherd boy and you made him a king. Not only that, you made him a dynasty. And the reason why these promises still hold true is that even though starting in 500 B.C., there's been no human ancestor of David sitting on a throne in Israel. The one greater than David has come. And God is saying, in my son Jesus Christ, who was in the line of David, he will one day sit in Jerusalem as king of the entire earth. That's why it's really cool if if you read the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus was born and John the Baptist grew up, when John the Baptist recognized who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, John the Baptist actually quotes Psalm 132. And basically says, he's the fulfillment of God's promise. That there would always be a king from the line of David who would rule and reign forever. Now here's what I want to end with. And this is a challenge to all of us. Again, going back to why I said what I said about, yes, David, starting with David, 1000 B.C., 1000 years before Christ, all the way up to the beginning of 500 B.C., 400 years, a human being in the line of David reigned on the throne in Israel. But after that, there's been no Davidic king. So think about it now. This psalm was sung by all those worshipers after that, for 500 years up to the time of Christ, and even Christ himself. Because I, I appreciated what Jill pointed out. She came up to me last week afterwards. I said, I just realized that, you know, when Jesus went to the temple, when he was a, a, a child with his parents, he would have sung these on the way to Jerusalem too. I said, absolutely right. And yet, here's what I want us to see. I want us to see that all those years that these travelers were singing this song, this was a profound expression of faith on their part. Because many times while they were singing these, and some Israelites were singing these on the way to Jerusalem, to the temple, many of their people were in exile, and there was no Davidic king on the throne. And yet they were still singing it. Because, here's, I think, the principle that God wants us to catch and grasp out of this. Many times our worship 
of God. And our recognition even of His promises have to be not by sight, but by faith. We have to be able to worship God by faith. Not always seeing it, but believing it anyway. Just like these people did for hundreds of years. They sang this song about the dynasty continuing and being forever. And yet there was no king in Israel from the line of David. Yet they clung to the promise of God that one day there would be another king from the line of David. And this dynasty would rule forever and ever. And God wants to see His people grow to that point in our worship of Him. Hey, whether it's individual worship throughout the week or whether it's when we come together on Wednesday night or Sunday, there's times where things aren't working out. And maybe we're even like, God, I'm clinging to this promise, but I have not seen any movement on your part and, and, and I haven't seen any fulfillment. And, and yet God says, worship me. Worship me not based upon the fulfillment of the promise because it's sure it will happen, but worship me based upon the fact that I even gave the promise in the first place. That the promise exists, not necessarily that it's been fulfilled. I mean, think about that. Isn't that the way it's been for the followers of God down through history? Think about all the Old Testament people who worship God about the promised Messiah, but they never saw the Messiah fulfilled in their lifetime. Think about us who come to worship the soon coming King, but maybe He won't come in our lifetime, but we still come believing that He is coming and that we worship Him as the one who is coming. Worship, much of the time, is actually an act of faith. Because a lot of times we might not even feel like worshiping. But God says, worship me. I've made promises. I've been good. I've been gracious. And when we begin to understand who God is, we don't always have to see it. We just have to embrace it and believe it. And if we embrace it and believe it, then our worship can just evolve into this wonderful experience where we just adore and show our gratitude to God regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of the circumstances. And we're going to talk more about this on Sunday as we talk about experiencing the supernatural, extraordinary peace of God. Well, let's pray. God, we thank You for these tremendous psalms of ascent that we've been studying. God, I pray tonight that like David, our heart would be stirred to worship You. God, You've graciously given us a place to worship You. May we be excited and enthusiastic and exuberant to come and worship You as God's people. To bow down to let you ascend to your rightful place, to exalt you. Because God, you've been so good and so gracious. You've given us so many wonderful promises and you've entered into a covenant with human beings. 
And so, God, I pray tonight that even when we don't feel like it, and even when we might not even see the promises of God being fulfilled before our eyes, that we know them to be sure, we know them to be reliable, and we worship you because of the God that you are, not because necessarily everything's falling out just right in our life. God, when we can get to that place, then we are truly ascending in our worship. Help us to be more like that, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place.